No? Okay. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to take a kind of a break, a little bit of a break from where we've been in the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. And we're going to do a devotion in John chapter 17 tonight. So something in John 17 has just really hit me this last week. And so I want to share it with you guys. Maybe it'll um, have some kind of impact on you as it has on me. And uh, I won't talk all about where I'm headed just yet, but um, I'll say that it's funny because it's one of the most, I think, loving verses in the Bible. And it's caused me the most unloving response. That's just what I'll say. (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you how and why in a, in a little bit. And I don't know if it's necessarily unloving, but it's kind of matter of fact, and we'll get to it in a minute. Um, John chapter 17, um, you guys hear about the two guys that were that were arguing about the Lord's Prayer. And the one guy said to the other guy in church, he said, I'll bet you 10 bucks, man, you don't know the Lord's Prayer. And the other guy said, I know the Lord's Prayer, I'll take that bet, and I'll bet you $10. And he said, okay, well then, you're on, what's the Lord's Prayer? And the guy said, Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the first guy that bet him was like, oh, shucks, here's the 10 bucks, man. <laughs> so the uh, Lord's Prayer, when you think of the Lord's Prayer, oftentimes, right, because I think it's even in our Bibles, it's headed that way. The Lord's Prayer is, um, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, as the disciples came and they said, teach us to prayer. We have that highlight of the Lord's Prayer. Really, that's technically not the Lord's Prayer. That's his prayer to teach us how to pray. Jesus would never pray that, right? Jesus would never use those words, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us and sin against us. Jesus had no debts to to be forgiven. Um, So technically, in in John 17, we we actually have the Lord's Prayer. We have Jesus praying to the Father. Now, as you know, in context, in John's Gospel, in a lot of the Gospels, this is very similar but the writers of the Gospels, they, they, they painstakingly um, take the last week of Jesus's life. The last John actually takes the last three days of Jesus's life. And he spends from chapter 13 of the Gospel of John all the way through to, to post-resurrection to John 21. And the last um, eight chapters of, of John's Gospel, which means 13 and 8. It's over a third of John's gospel just cover a 48-hour period of Jesus' life. So that last 48 hours we have in detail. Matthew's gospel, very similar. The writer Matthew spends lots of time, and and Matthew actually focuses on the entire last week of Jesus' life. So I think it's like Matthew, by the time you get to Matthew, I forget what it is now, 15, 16, um, you're you're getting into the just just covering the last week of Jesus' life, and then a little bit of post-resurrection. So here in John 17, um, in John 13, uh, John started with the um, washing of the disciples' feet in the upper room. They're preparing the upper room. The disciples enter the upper room, um, and, and from the upper room, Jesus there he washes the disciples' feet. They celebrate the Passover. Jesus institutes the Lord's um, Supper, which is, um, for the first time, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This all takes place in the upper room. Um, they, they spend time there. J- Judas puts his hand in the bowl. Judas takes off. At the end of John chapter 13, we have this phrase, let us go from here. And, and so they leave in John four, in the end of John 13, and somewhere between John 14 um, they, they go down the stairs of the upper room, 
and they're leaving the upper room and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested. Now, if you're, if you're in and when we're in Jerusalem, you'll see, um, you'll get to see exactly, and it's not the same today, um, but it's nice because when you're standing on the east side on the Garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, you're looking down the Kidron Valley, up the other side, you're looking at the, the east wall of the city. And then you see the Dome of the Rock, and then down this side, the City of David here. And then a little bit over this way, you have Caiaphas' house here where Jesus would have went. And then back a little bit along this line, Dome of the Rock, we're up on the Kidron Valley, we're on the Mount Gal- You'll see where the upper room was. And so Jesus was leaving there, and they were headed up to eventually going to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They would have passed right by Solomon's Temple. And so somewhere in John 14, along that descent, Jesus said to his disciples, you're, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house or any mansions, John 14, 1 through 6, Jesus said, I am the way. John Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And then, and then John 14 teaches about the Holy Spirit and giving the Holy Spirit. Then we get to John 15, and they're probably passing the temple at this point. And in John 15, the on the temple doors of Solomon would have been uh, the sim- one of the symbols of Israel, one of the great symbols of Israel, which is a grapevine. And so you have this, this grapevine. And really where the picture comes from is when Moses sent out the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb had a pole between their horses and a cluster of grapes on the pole that they got from Canaan when the 12 spies returned from, from spying out the land. Only two, as we know, Joshua and Caleb had a good report. The other 10 had a bad report. But Joshua and Caleb, to show the goodness of the land of Israel, which was Canaan at the time, they bring this cluster of grapes back um, from this, this spy mission. And it would, it would have been on a pole between the, the two horses, and it would have went from the backs of the horses to the ground, one grape cluster. And so they're, um, so this becomes the symbol of Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. And quite possibly on the doors of the temple where Solomon had built, this grape cluster symbolizing the, the fruit of Israel would have been there. And that's where Jesus looks at this symbol and this idea. And he begins the discourse of John chapter 15. I am the true vine. And so the vine was the national symbol of Israel. And Jesus gives the John 15 discourse. And then we get to um, sometime between there to John 16. And Jesus continues the the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, more teaching. That brings us to John 17, where Jesus now, how many of you guys have uh, Bibles with words, red letters? Red letters, some of you guys, okay. Um, I don't, one thing I don't like about this Bible, it's not a red letter edition, but everything else it has I need for preaching, it has my wide margins and all my stuff, and I could never switch now, I've been in this Bible for too long, and I bought three more of them that are in my shelf hidden at home. So that every time I get rid of one, I just start a new one, but same Bible. Um, maybe I'll just take a red highlighter. And, no, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. So we have now actually Jesus praying to the Father. Now what's interesting is where is he? I don't know. He, I know this. I know that he's somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. Did they stop? Did they go into the temple? Did they, did they pause somewhere? Did Jesus separate himself? Was it... Um, was it, you know, they had left the upper room in the morning and it took some time. And then by that evening, um, Judas Iscariot and those guys had shown up at, to arrest Jesus. So he was somewhere along the way. And some say he went into the temple and, and, and got alone with the Lord in a place of prayer. But we have Jesus praying. The title here says Jesus prays for himself. Um, so he prays for the disciples. It's the longest prayer that's recorded of Jesus in the Bible. 
um, you know, the, the manner in which Jesus prays, it's funny because we have recorded for us in the Bible different types of ways to pray. Okay, the only way in the Bible that's not recorded as, as, a, as a type of prayer or a posture of prayer is folded hands and eyes closed. That's, that's the only one. That's one we use most, right? If, you, if I say to you guys, let's pray, I have to see you guys do this, uh, which is cool. Like, I get it. You know, I'm not, I'm not making fun of you, but that's just the norm, you know. Um, Gail Irwin was teaching this in a conference, and... Uh, and he was teaching this, this same idea that really in the Bible, um, oftentimes when you see Jesus pray, the Lord says, and here in this prayer, this is what's going to happen. The Bible says that Jesus lifted his eyes to pray. And so it's, it's important. You know, it's a good idea to do that. Every once in a while, lift your eyes. And whether you're looking at the, at the stars or looking at the sun or the sky, but to lift your eyes to pray. That's recorded that Jesus prayed. Standing is a, is a way of praying that's recorded in the Bible. Jesus knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He knelt with hands raised. So you'll see, you'll see that recorded. Um, Paul tells us, and we see it recorded in the life of Jesus, that he lifted hands when he prayed. And Paul tells us multiple times in the epistles that, that I desire that, that men everywhere lift holy hands when they pray. So we have, we have that recorded in the, you know, in the Gospels, that we're to lift hands, raise eyes. So Gail Irwin is teaching this concept, and, and he's telling everybody, you know, like this habit of, of, you know, let's pray. You know, you know where that comes from, right? It comes from Sunday school. Because that's the only way you can get the kids to behave themselves long enough to pray so they're not hitting each other and kicking each other. So you're like, fold your hands, close your eyes, bow your head, let's pray. But that, that, that one's definitely not invented in the Bible. But So, so Gail is encouraging us as a, as a men's retreat, big, huge group of people, to, um, to not close your eyes and bow your heads immediately, to, you know, lift your eyes and, and look up, you know. I think sometimes in a, in a crowded room, I'll try it or I'll do it, but... Um, if somebody sees me and they don't really know what I'm doing, I often get the feeling like they think I'm not participating in the prayer because my head is raised and my eyes are open. And, you know, so it gets a little uncomfortable. So oftentimes I'll just, it doesn't matter anyways, right? You know, we're not talking about what God cares about really, honestly, right? I'm not trying to teach that, that God respects one way over the other. God, God's looking at your heart anyways. But, um, but I think it's a practice. I think it helps your faith a little bit. I think it helps kind of just you, you do it. But anyway, so Gail is saying, you know, oh, close your eyes and bow your head all the time. And, and then he says to the group, let's pray. And, and then Gail goes like this. And, and I'm the only one. I kept my eyes open. I'm staring at him. And he catches himself, and he's like. <laughs> but even him who's teaching it, he's like, that's just the habit. You know, it's just the habit when you, when you say let's pray. But it says in verse, chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. And what did he do? He lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Come on, when I pause, that's for you to fill in the blank. Father. What's the number one word in the New Testament that Jesus uses to describe God to you and I? Father. Isn't that powerful in itself, right? You know, because you think of God and who God is. And you think of really religion and what religion says about you and your relationship to God and, and, and how we address or, or approach God. And yet, the word the Bible uses that God teaches us, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, when you pray, say, our Father, our Father, our Father. And Jesus here, he lifts his eyes and he looks to the heavens and he says, Father. And that's the desire. The word that Paul talks about in this word, Father, is a word, Abba. And Abba really is a simple Greek word that means daddy. You know, Abba is, is what uh, uh, when a baby, when a, a little baby who spoke Greek, when they were forming their first words, the way they would call their, their dada, 
would be Abba. It's like Dada. And, and so that's what Paul says, our Dada or our Daddy in heaven, our Father, our Abba Father. Our, and, and again, it's a, it's a term of endearment. And, and it blesses me. It really blesses me that, that that's, what, that's the way that God wants me to relate to him. Not our God, the most holy, righteous, reverend, and all the signs and all the, 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 the titles that go with the name of God as we approach him in, in reverence and all these things. And obviously we're to be reverent, but, but we're, we're, we're given an invitation to be intimate and relatable. And, and, and Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. So there's a little bit of change here in verse 1 in the hour. Okay. Um, does anybody know what the... Uh, the doomsday is the doomsday, doomsday clock. It's the end of the world clock, basically. And, and does anybody know what it said on now? Is it like 11.58? I think they just changed it from 11.57 to 11.58. And it's like this. You can look it up if you want. It's a doomsday clock or it's the end of the world clock. And it's, they, they, they're saying that, that the end of the world, according to their calculations, is two minutes away. But Jesus, Amen, Amen. We're gonna get to, we're gonna get to that a little bit in this chapter. Is that you know just that idea that we're not of this world, and when we see the things of this world, we long for heaven. But but what's different here is Jesus often said. Do you remember when Mary came to Jesus and Jesus's very first miracle at Cana of Galilee? Jesus was invited to the wedding, and Jesus went to the wedding. Now, what's what's fascinating about that was that Jesus's um, very first appearance and miracle was like hashtag big deal right like jesus is coming out of the no he's not coming out of that he's coming out of you know obscurity and into public ministry for the very first time he's 30 years old he's a rabbi it's now time for his ministry to begin and 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 by the the divine design of god his first appearance and miracle is to solve a catering problem at a wedding and so he goes to this wedding because he's invited. And some people say, why did Jesus go to this wedding? You know, and, and the obvious answer is because Jesus goes anywhere that he's invited. Jesus always goes where he's invited. And so Jesus goes and his mother comes to him and she says, you know, basically, Jesus, we have a problem. Can you help? And what does he say to her? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come is what he tells his mom. And then she ignores what he says and she tells the servants to come and do what he says and he tells them to fill the water pots full of water and, 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 and really cool story, John chapter 2, and they do, and it's turned into wine. Um, but that same idea that Jesus told his mom, woman, don't trouble me, my hour has not yet come, he said that all the way through his three-year ministry. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What was his hour? His hour was this hour. When did it start? When did it end? Basically, um, I guess it ends when he said, te telestai. When he said, it is finished, when he, when he died on the cross and he gave up his last, that was the hour he was speaking of, was his time on the cross. Did it begin in John 14, in the last 48 hours, when he entered this last discourse of his life and, and went into the upper room 48 hours from the cross and began the, the Lord's Supper? Did it somewhere, but here in John 17, right in this whole sequence, his hour is now here. And he said, the hour has now come. Because he was, he was come to die on a cross. And so he says there in verse 1, the hour has now come um, that your son also glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Now, which, which glory is Jesus talking about here? We're going to talk about a couple. We can define a couple as we go through this. But one of the things that's going to glorify Jesus is his death upon the cross. 
And there was a certain glory that, that was going to be a certain uh, sin and death that would be conquered and a victory in glory that Jesus would um, claim upon the cross. And he said, as you have given him authority, Jesus talking to the Father, over, over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the goal and the, the, the heart of Jesus through all this is to give us eternal life. And to give all eternal life. The Bible says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He has no pleasure in anyone who dies apart from salvation in Jesus and doesn't go to heaven. It's God's will that all should be saved and that none should perish. And Jesus says here that, that he's come, that he might um, give them eternal life. And as you have given, as you have given him. Um, and also, uh, you know, Jesus says that, the Bible says that nobody comes. Listen, none of you guys will come to know Jesus unless the Father calls you or draws you. Unless the Father draws you first. None will come. So we can all be thankful. We can be thankful that the Father called us and that, that we responded. And, and Jesus said, none unless the, none will come unless the Father first calls them. In verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life. You think the next sentence is important? And this is eternal life. How many of you guys want eternal life? Now, now let's put eternal life in perspective, okay? Does, does everybody who, because basically, right, everybody who's been born has eternal life. You agree with that? Yeah, if we're defining it, right? Every, everybody that's born. You know, Jesus said at one point, if, if, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, um, it would be better for you if, if you had not been born. Why? Because, because everybody is eternal and is going to live for eternity. The question is not whether you're eternal. You're designed and born and you're going to live forever. The question is where you spend eternal, but eternal life. But here in this, in this context, we understand that when Jesus says eternal life, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about those that are going to go to heaven. And Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you are, are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So again, it's relational, you know, without, without getting into it where, where we've studied it already. But we made a huge deal of this in church here when we covered these passages in the Bible that, 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 that talk about this through the Gospels, that over and over and over again, what God relates to eternal life is personal relationship with Him. Knowing the Father, knowing the Son. It has nothing to do with doing, it has nothing to do with what you do, it has everything to do with who you know. And so here again, we have this, this is very um, biblically consistent. You can type into your concordance the word no, K-N-O-W, and, and especially in the Gospels, and you'll find multiple reference um, in the Gospels where, where God puts together knowledge and relationship with um, salvation, and that's the key uh, of what the Bible teaches about salvation, relationship. Um, and then he says that you are the only true God. Now, why would Jesus say that the Father is the only true God? Isn't he the only God, period? So there's lots of other gods. There's lots of other false gods, right? We know that God is the only true God. He's the only real God. But, but biblically, again, um, in the context, Satan himself is called a God. He's called the God of this world with a little g. The gods of the Canaanites God talks about. The gods basically are anybody, when the, Bible, when the Bible uses this term, the gods or different gods, they're, they're anything that, that men worship. They're labeled as a god. 
because they're a god to that person. They're an idol to that person that's put in place of God. They don't exist. There's, there's one true God, and as far as the world is concerned, there's God, and there's the angels, and, and two-thirds of the angels remained angels and good and guardian angels and, the, and on our side, and, and a third left with Satan, and, we, and those are demons. So anything that we have that is supernatural, it comes out of, that, out of that realm somewhere. There's nothing apart from that. There's no aliens. There's no life on other planets. Um, there, there's, there's only that, that realm. But in that, the Bible talks about lots of gods, different gods, but that he said you are the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, which I have finished the work which you have given me. So how is Jesus going to finish the work? He's going to finish it on the cross. Okay, tetelestai. It is finished. And now, verse 5, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, the first glory that, that Jesus talked about um, um, in verse 17, or verse chapter 1, verse 1, and then here, like I talked about in that reference, that there's different types of glories that Jesus is talking about. One of the references is to the glory with, with what Jesus had before he, he became a, was born as a baby in a, in a manger in Bethlehem. And so, you know, Jesus was in um, the kenosis scripture, right? Jesus emptied himself. He, we, we studied that again in depth where the Bible says that, that Jesus, um, he, that what's we, what we call the incarnation. He took on flesh. He left heaven. He became a man. And that he emptied himself of divine attributes. That's how Jesus could say um, in, in Matthew 24 that no man knows the day or the hour, only, not even the angels in heaven, only the Father meaning he himself didn't know the hour. And people will jump on that and say, well, how could Jesus and the Father be one and, and Jesus not know what the Father knew about the, the time of Jesus' return? It wasn't because Jesus didn't know or doesn't know or is not one with the Father. It's because of the kenosis. It's because of this um, incarnation and this process that Jesus took on for you and I where he emptied himself and, and, and in that, he, he emptied himself of certain divine attributes. We labeled five of them. We studied them. We went through them, the five things that Jesus emptied himself of. And one of the things that he emptied himself of was this glory that, that he had prior to coming to Bethlehem. We talked about it on Sunday night at Abide, right? Jesus, in his glory, he's the, he's the God of heaven. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that he who was rich became poor so that you and I might become the righteousness of God so that we might become rich. And so Jesus, again, is God in heaven. We, we've looked at scenes in Revelation and we see what, what his existence was like as the God of the king of heaven. And the angels worship him and bow down and they spontaneously break into worship when they see him. And it's that glory that, that Jesus is ready to return to, and he's asking the Father to give back to him. There's the glory that he's going to um, receive upon the cross, the glory from you and I and with us and in us and through us that he's going to defeat sin and death. And then there's the former glory that he had while he was yet, while before he became a man, he's in heaven, and he's asking in verse 5 now, it's time that he, he's going to be returned. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was um, was we remember um, Mount Transfiguration, right? The Mount of Transfiguration was always a little bit of a eyebrow raiser for me, kind of like I just 
couldn't quite theologically, doctrinally put my mind or wrap my mind around what was happening in the transfiguration and what was the significance. But I think part of it we see here where that's where Jesus went up on the mount and he brought Matthew, James, Peter, James, and John, and and he was transfigured before them and Elijah and Moses were there and Peter opens his big mouth and the father tells Peter to shut up. He says, stifle, shut your mouth, Peter. Listen to my son. But anyways, we see, and I think that, that part of what was taking place there was it was necessary. I think there was some value in the disciples seeing Jesus in his glory. And so they got to get a piece of and a glimpse of seeing the glory that, that, that Jesus had with the Father before he was there. And as he transfigured, he would have been in that, that, that position of glory for that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. So Jesus says, I gave them your word. Okay? And so part of the process of what Jesus was doing was giving them the word, and this is what they were going to take and go forth with. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known suddenly that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. Now what does this mean, I don't pray for the world? It means that Jesus's context in this in this prayer is for the disciples. It's for those that were closest to him. Now, what he's going to pray for the disciples would affect the world. So Jesus's heart, his compassion is is still for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The heart of Jesus and the heart of Father are one and and it's not as if Jesus in any way didn't have a heart for the world to get saved or for the world to be changed. Um, it was the whole point. But, but in this specific prayer, he wasn't praying for the masses. You know, I hear, I hear people, I've heard people um, say something like, and I don't know, I wouldn't, I don't know who am I to judge somebody's prayer, and God, hopefully God will answer it, but I've never prayed that way. But they'll say like, Lord, I pray for the prayer needs of the whole world. Lord, I pray for every single person in the whole world. Um, okay, cool. Like, again, you know, you got, just got bigger vision than I do. And um, I guess we can pray for the whole world and everybody in it, you know. But, um, you know, I usually just pray for more specific things and, and, and people. But God definitely has a heart for the world. But in this prayer, and, and I find a little comfort in that, you know, if, I, if I'm being honest, I think um, the majority of the time that I spend praying, I would say is for, for believers, you know, I, I, I pray for the lost, and, and, and I pray, especially pray for the lost. My, my kind of personal conviction is that, that I, you know, because if I, if I think of somebody and that I should be praying for and I haven't just honestly been diligently praying for this person or on my knees literally, you know, saying their name out loud, I, I can get convicted and feel bad, like, oh, I'm not a good, I'm not a good Christian. I mean, but I, I just don't own that anymore. I got rid of that. Like, I don't feel that way anymore. Here's, what I feel, here's how I feel now. When, when God puts somebody on my heart... That's when I pray for them. And, and, and then I can have some guilt and I can feel like I, I, I missed the mark a little bit if God puts somebody in my heart and I don't take the time to pray for him. But, I, but I'm not going to wear the idea that, oh, I forgot about this guy and that guy that I should be praying for that's lost or whatever. You know, when I think of them, when they come to mind, and especially, especially 
when I'm when I'm when I'm praying, and then I start to think of somebody, my mind starts to wander, and it wanders onto something. To me, that's just you know that that's a definite call of God to be praying for whatever my mind just wandered to, and then I'll start to pray for that and cover that. Um, but I think I think we get a little a little biblical precedence here, and it's okay, a little encouragement that. You know, we're, we're to pray for one another. We're to spend time praying for one another. Jesus is going to go on. He's going to expand his prayer. And, and again, he's praying for the disciples to have this unity and, and to have a power. And the power in the prayer that Jesus is going to pray specifically for the, for the 11 now is going to be directly related to reaching the world. So, in, in, you know, indirectly, he's still praying for the lost and for the world. But he says, I don't pray for the world. I'm praying for um, where am I at? Nine, but for for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these things, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. You know, it's the only time um, where Jesus calls God Holy Father in in the, in the New Testament. We don't see this Holy Father. So I don't know why. I don't know what inspired this. I don't know where. You know, he's in prayer. He's in the middle of this this prayer in depth, and he's talking to God and. And he addresses him here as Holy Father. It's just, it's cool. I think it's awesome. I think it's something definitely we should do because Jesus did it. But it's just not something that's, that's often repeated in the Bible. It's, it's very rare to see that. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. So Jesus' prayer. Now listen, and, and I want to um, just, just briefly, I guess, I don't want to un- unpack the entire um, topic of church unity tonight. I, I, th- I had some notes, some other places, but um, let's just say this: in, in Jesus's final prayer. Now, it's it's a lot. It's twenty six verses. Okay, how long how long would it take us to read this chapter out loud? Three minutes. So it's possible Jesus could have prayed this whole prayer in a total of three to five minutes. Could have spent his time, and maybe it wasn't all recorded. But but basically. He, he's, he's saying his last prayer to the Father before he's going to die. And multiple times in this prayer, he's going to pray for unity among the brethren, for unity among the churches, unity among the disciples, unity among the, 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 the body of Christ. So I would, I would think it's, it's absolutely fair and honest to say that Jesus desires that you and I have unity. Now, now, what is the deal with unity? It's funny because um, I've been asked to teach a, a, a unity conference in, in, in California. And you guys can pray for me. Please pray for me. I'm going to a little teaching trip, and uh, I'll be here. I won't miss any, any time. I'm going to leave Thursday morning and get back Saturday night so I can preach Wednesday night and Sunday morning. It's in September. Um, and so uh, I'm going to take Pat with me. Pat's going to travel and road dog with me. I'm teaching Thursday night at a thing called Forged by Fire Stake and Study. It's a it's a men's men's uh, 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 outreach ministry. About 350 guys, and they serve them all steak, and that's how they get them to come. And then I get to give them Jesus. And then Friday, I'm teaching at the uh, Calvary Bible Institute with the students at the Christian School at Joshua Springs. And then Saturday, a Unity Conference for another church um, in, in the Yucca Valley area. And so. I've um, been praying and, and, and seeking the Lord over this topic of, of unity. And they, they say, I said, okay, it's a unity conference, so I'm supposed to teach on unity. Well, obviously, John 17 is important to that because Jesus 
um, in his heart, and, and, and what was important to him was that we, we have unity. And, and the story that always sticks out to me when I think of unity was um, when I was in Bible college, there were 17 Bible college students full-time. I think there was about 12 guys and five girls. Uh, we were an extension campus of Murrieta Bible College, Calvary Chapel Bible College, our main campus in Murrieta. And um, we were a work-study program. We, we had a retreat center. We worked and lived at a retreat center. We had about a 140-bed retreat center. Um, where the students lived and worked, and we kind of did double time up at the church and um, half time at the church, half time down at the retreat center. And, and I remember among the 17 students who, who lived and worked and went to class, and then we also, all of our classes were in the evening when I was in Bible college. So about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, your, your classes would start, and you'd have classes um, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Um, maybe we'd have one class on a Friday. Wednesday was, was midweek study, and we'd all serve on Wednesday nights, and then we'd be in class till 9, 10 at night. And we start the next day, and there was there was always a not always I guess there was a, a season where as a as a student body, we we desired to have unity among the students. So we would talk about it, we'd pray about it, we would seek it, and and we went through this you know hey let's you know we know it's the heart of Jesus and we know it's biblical and and we you know we struggle in this area and let's let's have unity. And, and for two years of Bible college, guess what we never one time accomplished? <laughs> Unity. Absolutely not. It just didn't happen. And, and it, you know, it didn't necessarily plague me too bad or bother me, but it did definitely make me, you know, I figured out, I guess. You know, the issue is we were never going to have unity because the, 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 the way that you have unity is you die to yourself and you become other-centered. And you put other people before yourself. But you're going to put 17 young, new Christians um, together, you know, 18 to 22 years old, and expect them to put the other 16 students in front of themselves all the time. And it just wasn't going to happen. And, and it, it would take, you know, and it takes really uh, a maturity. It takes a season of maturity and growing and dying to yourself to, to, to become um, other centered and, and really we're not going to we won't accomplish unity you know i think i think first at first for you know in the forefront that we you and i have to understand that, that god desires unity among us okay so you have that as a goal now how, how we accomplish that how well we do at that it, it's secondary to the fact that yes it's established god desires unity among the churches god desires unity among the the, the pastors but you know what? As the world gets closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, I mean, Paul tells us, right, that, that in the last days that men will grow haughty, they'll become lovers of themselves, and that we'll just see the, 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 the wickedness wax hotter and hotter, the Bible says. So, um, but, and you know, one of the things really honestly, and, and I've, I've wept, literally wept over the issue multiple times, but we, we have a real plague of, of, of just division in the church you know and not not necessarily in the local church i'm not talking about you know in our church here i'm just saying in the church body you know globally and and nationally there's such a division such a divide and and there's there's you know and i don't know it's tough because i get it i get i get part of the the thing where we you know we we do things differently and 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 it's it, it's difficult, but you know one thing that stands out to me was, um, especially for us, was a guy in the Bible named Apollos, and Apollos was a was a student of Paul, 
And, and the Bible, and Paul himself said, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the greatest orator. Paul was the greatest mind. And, and Paul was, was the, the, the smartest and had the most accurate biblical mind that God ever created. But Paul, in his own words, you know, said, I don't deliver flowery sermons and speeches. But Apollos, this, 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 this friend of Paul's, this companion of Paul's, who we see in the book of Acts, Paul says, he's a man of elegant speech. Which means he was a he, he he could throw down a sermon in a way that was super elegant and flattery, and he could you know have a sermon and every every point began with the same letter or whatever, and he could you know all of these things and they rhymed and the ideas and the thoughts and and it says that Apollos didn't even know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then when he gets to the uh, he gets in the book of Acts, he he runs into a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside after, after a message, and they said to Apollos, they said, Apollos, um, have, have you heard of the Holy Spirit, and uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And Apollos said, what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And, and, and it says that they, they pulled him aside, and they took him out you know, to coffee, and, and they, 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 they taught him the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and further things of the gospel for this guy, Apollos. But before Apollos even was teaching the, the, the proper things, God was still using him. God could still use Apollos without what? Perfect doctrine. God could still use him. Let me tell you something about, about people that don't agree with us, that are different than us, that, that have different ideas or doing things different. Let me tell you something. God can still use them. God is still using them. But in the body, they're just, that lacks. That idea lacks, that that, 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 you know, that, that emphasis lacks that, listen, we are different, but you, you, you know, what's going to, you know, what it's going to be like when we're in heaven. You know, those, you know who those people are going to be? They're going to be our brothers and sisters. Going to be your brothers and sisters in Christ and all a part of the body of Christ. And, and I guarantee you, there's a couple things, there's a couple things that I jump on with two feet. There's a couple things that I draw the line at. And, and, and I'm telling you, one of them is, when I get to heaven, I guarantee, I, I'm not going to have to explain to Jesus why I spent my time telling other people to how they did it wrong. The last thing I'm going to do is waste any of my time telling other people why they did it wrong. You know why? Because most of the people that spend their time telling other Christians and other ministries how they're doing it wrong, they're not doing anything themselves. What are you doing for Jesus? What are you doing to... Have something to offer Jesus when you stand before him, to serve the Lord. And if you spend all your energy and all your time fighting with other Christians why they're wrong and doing it wrong, then, you know, I'm not going to be in that class. I just, I won't worry about them, what they're doing. They're doing it wrong and different. There comes a line. The Bible talks about that there are wolves in sheep's clothing and that as a pastor, one of the things we have to do is we have to run off wolves and we have to, you know, we have to protect the, the flock and the sheep. And I get it. And there comes a time where you have to give somebody the left hand of fellowship and, um, you know, which is kicking them out of church and, and, and different things that you have to do. And maybe there's times where there's some heresy out there that's damning in the body and, and I have to call it out. But, but, but for the most part, I, I just, I don't have any time or energy. There's enough to do and enough direction that I don't want to spend my time why everybody else is wrong. God's still using them. You know, there's, there's, there's different ministries all, all over the United States. Now, what I'll say sometimes is I don't think that I could necessarily sin under their teaching just because it's not the lane that I'm in. 
you know, but God allows it. We had a, we had a woman back in the early days of, of Big Calvary. And, and Chuck, Chuck, you know, Pastor Chuck had lots of rules. But he had lots of rules because he had lots of people. And, and, and you know, one of the things is that, the, you know, that if there's any criticism, I think, of Pastor Chuck or of Big Calvary, you know, and I don't even know if this is criticism. I just think it's, it's, it was the way that the cookie crumbled. But the things that they did in the early years of, of you know, they, 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 as they grew, there became more rules and regulations and less freedom. And so anyways, they had a – Chuck had – you try to walk in, in Big Calvary with a baby, the child – forget about it like the ushers will wrestle it out of your hand at the door you know like but it just got so big and the church got so big that they just they had just had to be dogmatic and the babies weren't allowed because it was such a distraction so babies weren't allowed in sanctuary it was okay we're small enough we can still do that the other thing they did was they would not allow people to stand in the service when other people were sitting and and why we do. You guys notice if you come on Sunday mornings, there's times where, you know, as a church, we're sitting and people are standing. We have no problem with that. We tell them you stand or sit as you like. But what, ha- what would happen in, 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 in Calvary in those days as the church began to just blow up, invariably, there would be, you know, some woman who would, would be in a spaghetti strap backless shirt and sitting on the front row and decide while the whole church was sitting that she wanted to stand and go, Jesus, I just love you. You know, and it's like. The one woman in church, and she's got nothing on her back, and she's, I mean, it's like, sit down. It'll make you more spiritual or holy. What are you doing? You're showing off. You're drawing attention to yourself. And so they made a hard rule. Nobody stands when everybody's sitting. When the church stands, we stand. When everybody sits, we sit. And, and, and unfortunately, the baby had to go out with the bathwater a little bit. But, you know, when you're small, you don't have to have as many rules. When you're big, you have to have a lot of rules. And so he had a woman who she did this. They were singing a hymn in the beginning. And she wasn't on the front row, but she was somewhere in her seat. And she stood and began to worship the Lord. You know, and, and, and the ushers came over and said, oh, excuse me, but you need to sit down. So she got, she got a hold of Chuck after the service. And, you know, she said, well, why are we... Um, why, why, you know, what's wrong and why don't we have to sit and why, you know, your ushers came over and she was pretty upset that Chuck said that. And she said, do you have a scripture for this? And of course, Chuck laid it right down the line. He gave her the scripture, you know, and things should be done decently and in order. And there's a couple others. And, um, and then he told her, why don't you go to Vineyard? And he said, now, I think they're a little crazy in some areas, but they stand when they worship, and they, they wobble back and forth, and they, they like that style of worship. And if that's what you, how you like to worship, go to Vineyard. Vineyard was, was a church down there that was, that was Pentecostal and had broken out of Calvary because they felt like Pastor Chuck wasn't Pentecostal enough. And, and, and again, but in love, he told her to go to Vineyard. And he said that, 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 that God obviously... Some people are going to relate to God. They're going to grow more. They're going to connect more to the Lord in a demonstrative church. And, and, and some people are going to come to Calvary. They're going to be bored stiff. They're going to hate it. They're going to go to another church where it's a little wilder and a little more demonstrative. And they're going to fit in. And God allows it. And one's not better than the other. And one's not right and one's not wrong. But God allows, allows multiple experiences for worship. Why? So he can reach more people. And, and it doesn't mean that because we do it one way, we sit when everybody sits and we stand when everybody sits and down the street that they stand and sit however they like, that one is right and one is wrong and one is pleasing God and one is displeasing God. That's not the point at all. And, and, and here's the problem. Like, don't be mad at me 
And don't, don't go on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and light me up because we, we do it a certain way. Go, go to the church that does it the way you like it. 